This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am really excited to be joined by Tyler Cole. Tyler is a freshly minted new attending at Cedar sinai out in sunny California, who has been generous enough to give some of his time from establishing a busy new practice to come on and talk today about a very important topic in neurosurgery and medicine writ large and really uh, science and, and industry for, for the nation, which is the use and maybe the misuse or perhaps the abuse of statistics and statistical tools in research in our field and in the field writ large. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Take a moment and introduce yourself to the listeners. Hey, JP. Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, uh, you know, like you mentioned, I appreciate the nice uh, introduction. I just uh, started at Cedar Sinai as an attending, mostly focused on cerebrovascular work. Um, but you know, relevant to what we're talking about today, I you know, I've been involved in basic science work since undergrad in the early two thousands at University of Michigan, and then um, also took you know computer science classes during that time. Found them really interesting. In medical school, I continued you know, continued that in biomedical informatics, their department there at uh, Stanford's really great. So really dove into it without plans to go into neurosurgery at that point. The idea being, I just wanted to collect these quote unquote, big data analytical tools that were more or less agnostic to the subject that I, you know, was studying so that I could apply them to, you know, whatever I wanted to down the road. So um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't make mistakes in stats or even that I'm really an, an authority. I think I'm just a, an interested, uh, practitioner, uh, who, uh, sees a lot of things that are a little you know, unusual or interesting in the literature that I think uh, are worth, worth talking about. Sure. Um, I guess to set the stage and establish a little context for this conversation, I will uh, clue the listeners in uh, to the incredibly complex uh, machinery that goes into planning and scheduling these episodes and who the guests will be and what the topic of conversation will be. So uh, the way this came about, Tyler, as you know, is that I was traveling and I was uh, outside of Chicago in another city alone one night sitting at a bar, having a drink, scrolling through Twitter. And a post from you came up in my Twitter feed that began with the following words. Garbage studies like this are what happens when, quote, researchers don't understand their own stats and study design limitations. And what followed was, I lost count, but it had to be at least a, a foot of scrolling of uh, <laughs> posts of you within that thread, just as you said, annihilating this poorly constructed paper and just really artfully and hilariously taking it apart bit by bit and explaining why it should never have been done. And the way it was done was done poorly and inappropriate. And I just messaged you on Twitter and said, Hey, thanks for a fun read. Can we talk about this for the audience? So I guess we recently had an episode about machine learning and artificial intelligence and its application to medicine and neurosurgery. I know that's a topic and a set of tools that you'd like to talk about. But that paper that led me to talk to you today was, I believe, an analysis from an administrative data set, one of these big 
what, you know, ICD code based studies. And that's something we haven't talked yet on the show about. So maybe we can begin there as a very popular and increasingly widely used type of paper, because every year that goes by, those data sets get larger and larger and larger, and they're easy to mine and throw, you know, all these data cells together and come up with a p-value. So maybe we can start with the giant administrative data set paper as a jumping off point for sorts of research that you might find frustrating when you see it published. Yeah, yeah. That, and, you know, that, that tweet, I, I don't think is, uh, I, I hope it's not representative of my, uh, my general tone. I think I was particularly <laughs> peeved by that. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say to, to, to cover you, you, you even put a disclaimer. You said, I will try to maintain professional voice, but if I slip into spicy voice, please forgive me. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah exactly. And I say all this with a with, with disclaimer of I've made these mistakes. Um, I don't think anyone, you know, doing making these mistakes are, are, you know, bad people or anything like that. And there's certainly lots of gr- obviously fantastic applications of, you know, stats and AI and machine learning. Um, but it's it's more sort of the the the, the unquestioning um, acceptance of a lot of it. Uh, not that it's completely unquestioning, but uh, it's clear that I, I think, particularly amongst journals, that there isn't uh, the best uh, you know knowledge background to you know judge which studies are you know valid or which have design flaws and which aren't. And I think that's that's mostly my concern. So. You know, regarding the administration, uh, the administrative data, you know, briefly for those you know not familiar with this type of paper, basically it's it's data, it's it's billing data that's used primarily for reimbursement purposes, and it it really just contains what's necessary for payments and what's financially relevant for insurers or reimbursements to hospitals, physicians, and. The procedures are often pretty accurate because of the financial value of coding those procedures correctly, but there's really effectively no details beyond what the CPT or the the, the, uh, common procedural terminology or the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases, what those codes describe. So, you know, in terms of comorbidities that are listed under a patient, it's it's really limited to what happens to be captured by the coders. and it's not always what's the most uh, clinically relevant, and it can vary quite a bit depending on local billing practices. So I think it's it's worth kind of touching on, you know, what type of studies this type of data is useful for, and probably the most useful are studies looking at trends, uh, which help us as practitioners understand the nationwide context of different procedures or if there's a new procedure to what degree is it taking you know procedure share away from other procedures that treat the same pathology and so on and so forth you know basically things where you're not trying to necessarily compare you know patients but you're just looking at overall trends um, it's also useful for for benchmark metrics like you know assessing what nationwide readmission rates are or other types of quality uh, metrics like that or, you know, if you are looking at outcomes, keeping it to a pretty homogenous pathology group where there's not a lot of um, 
there's not many variations on the pathology. So, for example, I think it's it's kind of a abstract statement. For example, it's probably easier um, to describe this comparing two pathologies. So the the paper that I was particularly agitated about was looking at open versus endovascular treatment of an, uh, aneurysms in uh, Germany using German administrative data. And aneurysms are difficult. A lot of vascular pathologies difficult because there are so many variables that are not captured in the administrative data. It, really anything in like a radiology report, you're not going to get. So things like the aneurysm size, um, the morphology of the aneurysm, the location of the aneurysm, it's, what the thought process was of the surgeon or interventionalist treating it, or what the technique was that was used to treat it, um, that's all missing in the data. Now, compare that to something like what I've looked at in, in admin databases, uh, like carotid stenosis. There's not that many different variations on, on ICA stenosis. It's really symptomatic, asymptomatic, and then, um, you know, there's really only a few treatment options. Stenting, CEA, or more recently, TCAR. So there's not that many ways that the, the data can be biased in a, in a relatively homogenous pathology like that. So does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so that's, I mean, you're right. It's frustrating because like in, in any study, in any kind of trial you're planning, there's the, the push and pull between having a large sample size, which they achieve using these administrative data sets, but then having the granularity of really diving deep into every individual case in your sample. And so in, in my experience, when I have used ICD codes, for example, to identify patients for retrospective chart review, we'll search by ICD code. And I always cast a very wide net and throw every code I can think of at the wall that might capture the patients I want. But then we manually go through every single chart and make sure that the patient actually has pathology we're looking for, and then further abstract out the clinical information we want. So using these massive data sets purely with the ICD code and not doing the, the manual monkey work of going through each chart, yes, you have a, a massive end, but as you're saying, it doesn't have that granularity and specificity of all that variation within a single ICD code, like with an aneurysm. Now, perhaps the way we're moving with increasing computer science, and now that we have stronger and stronger AI tools and uh, computer tools with language processing, perhaps we're moving to a place where you can instruct a computer code to troll through your entire system's EPIC database and first screen by ICD code, and then it can read through the charts in a fraction of the time it would take us to and abstract out that granular data. Is that something you foresee or, or you think people are working on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's certainly the, the path that you can see going in the future. You know, the caveat being most of this commentary is based on things that have happened, you know, kind of pre a lot of this, um, you know, LLM uh, AI, you know, uh, revolution uh, going on. Whether it lives up to the hype, I guess it remains to be seen. Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 clear that there's a, 
gap where some of the tools that are specifically made for that are uh, could be used in clinical practice to accelerate these types of studies. The issue, though, is that a lot of it's not scalable, meaning each different EMR and each different local EMR installation is different. There's a right. lot of legal barriers with, with HIPAA getting access. I mean, I when I first started residency, I tried to get access to the, where I trained at, at Barrow, they had uh, access to the, the whole Dignity Health Network. And just trying to negotiate with them was to get access to the data was extremely difficult because they also have the liability of allowing access to all this medical data to these models. So hmm. they, for the hospital networks, there's really only disincentive to have a lot of these AI models get access to the data because you don't necessarily know where the data is going to go. And they want yeah. some degree of insurance that the data is, you know, staying within a restricted, uh, um, you know, basically a, a restricted environment that's extremely secure. And setting that whole that, that whole process up is is um, uh, extremely difficult. You know, as especially as a resident, I was focused on also <laughs> getting clinically competent. You know, getting surgical skills. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that's really it's a full time job that a lot of companies work on in a lot of different fields that basically require a whole, you know, computer science, you know, a whole team of you know computer scientists to work on. So. Yeah, I mean, t tackling it as an individual researcher is, I think, it, often easier said than done, mostly because when you actually consider the incentives for sharing and accessing that data, it's far more complex than, you know, something like, you know, because a lot of people think like, oh, you know, they can do this for online ads, you know, if that's what Facebook does, and, right. you know, Instagram, whatever, that's, that's Google, um, but you have to remember that those are companies that are using AI machine learning on their own data, right? They've, they've created the right. platform. They, they, they created the data structure and they have access to it as opposed to a lot of medical researchers where we're sitting outside. I mean, we produce the data, but legally it's not our data. It's, it's the responsibility of the, the health networks and the hospitals. And, you know, it's really, it belongs to the patients. So there's that whole legal barrier that makes it far more complex with, with medical data you know, as opposed to an environment like, you know, online advertising. Yeah, I mean, not not to mention that their outcome of interest is how long a given screen is displayed on a computer monitor. And our outcome of interest is shifting a probability curve that a blood vessel might bleed again in the next 10 years, which is infinitely more complex and higher stakes. Um, but here's a fun one for you. And this is what happens when I do these episodes without Dr. Wang, and he's not here to rein me in and keep me uh, down on terra firma, because I'm going to take a sharp left turn and throw a philosophical question at you this early into this conversation. Because when, when you were talking about these large administrative data sets, and the, the fact that even the same EMR platforms like Epic in two different hospitals is a wildly different uh, piece of software for the user, and might be even structured beneath the user interface differently. Uh, which is a, a very important point. Um, and then take at the next level up, as you also pointed out, the coders at a given hospital might code things completely differently based on uh, financial incentives, based on just human practice in that department, maybe 
the most senior coder always coded something this way and they're the ones who taught the other people. And so that's how a department winds up coding a given uh, diagnosis or a given procedure, et cetera. And, and if you take all of those little variations and trends, every one of which is a small abstraction further away from the physical reality of the patient's disease and their treatment, um, and you imagine all of those little little bubbles of variation at every hospital and every city and every state around the whole country, here's the, the million dollar question to you. Do you think that if a single team of computer scientists or even a, a super AI, if you imagine a super AI capable of doing this, had simultaneous access to every electronic medical record in the country, all pooled together in one place, is it your intuition that that pooled data set would generate anything that was actually useful or approximating truth? So, you know, potentially, but kind of the, the underlying question of what you're asking is about generalizability. So yes. even if you have all the data and you run the fanciest machine learning or AI algorithms on it, um, you know, to what degree are you sampling all the data and to what degree are you validating it on the data? Just for these models to be useful, yeah, you, you have to have access to the data, but then they also have to apply for each individual person. So depending on practice patterns, a model may or may not be useful for you specifically, uh, depending on, you know, what sort of treatments, you know, treatment paradigms you particularly use, what, what is your particular patient population? And the other issue is that the, the so once, once a model is deployed, it also affects your behavior and mm. the effects of that data then being fed into the system has to continuously be reincorporated into the model, right? You can't just make a model. And I'm talking about, about using it practically clinically over time. You can't just use the model and then, you know, just set it and forget it because over time, the accuracy of it, of it will degrade because the results of the model change the potentially change people's behavior. So you have to have a way of updating it over time. Again, which th this is what, you know, in, in uh, you know, private industry, you know, machine learning models that are, that are deployed in practice, you know, whether in, you know, actual, you know, actuarial fields, finance, whatever, um, they're constantly being updated. So unless you have a team that's dedicated to constantly maintaining these models, then you don't understand to what degree over time that model drifts from the data that's being fed in compared to the data that it was originally trained on. So that, I mean, that, that's, it, it's a separate kind of field uh, area within machine learning research called you know, instability, model, model instability. And, um, and yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a, to answer your question, it's hard to say. I mean, yes, potentially it's, it's useful to have the data, but the, the devil is in the details. The, the devil yeah. is in how, how is it actually implemented and used and to what degree does that change the behavior 
and is the model updated? And also, I mean, at, at the lowest level, the, 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 the classic maximum computer science of garbage in, garbage out, and in this setting for, for this sort of uh, information science endeavor could, could also translate to bias in, bias out. I, I imagine if you right. pooled and averaged every single respiratory rate measurement in the country ever recorded, uh, I think we have all seen the phenomenon of every patient on a given floor with a respiratory rate of 16 overnight every hour. Incredible. And so I can imagine yeah. a, a, a loop effect where, you know, in, in 1842 or whatever, when some German medical student stared at 20 people breathing for an hour and deemed that 16 was the respiratory rate of humans at rest. And then every nurse in the country just typed that in overnight for 20 years. And then we go, oh, great AI, what is the true average respiratory rate of Americans? They say, of course, it's 16, because that's what was put in. So bias in, bias out should also be considered. But um, absolutely, setting aside, yeah, I guess setting aside the philosophical left turn, then I'll, uh, I'll try to be more pragmatic and, and make a right turn back to uh, the, the real topic at hand. And so if that's kind of the use and misuse of research and science in, in neurosurgery today, Maybe we could touch on a bit of the abuse and this, we've talked about this a few times on the show now, and I'm sure at conferences and, and every department and every academic program in the nation, they're, they're talking about this explosion in publication rates, uh, both for attending, junior attendings, academics, for residents who want to be seen as competitive for fellowship applications, but particularly we're getting into interview season now for medical students who are entering the interview process and the match process, especially now in the post step one is pass fail and, and losing that great metric to distinguish yourself on the interview trail. So I know that this is a, a topic that you have strong opinions about, as as should we all within academia, really. So maybe talk a little bit about this explosion in the publication arms race and, and you know, how it looks from your side of things. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's 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 unfortunate, and and a lot of what's it's driven by is I think access to these statistical tools through you know point and click interfaces, and you know you can run a a, a regression really without any knowledge of how. Uh, logistic regression works. You, you, all you have to know is, oh, I can, I want to put in these variables and this is the outcome and, mm -hmm. you know, let the computer do its thing and then you get results, you get odds ratios, things that you can, you know, put into a table and package into a study and, you know, submit and <clears throat> it, it basically accelerates the, 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 the turnover time for a lot of these papers. If you're not, critically looking at the data that you're putting into the models or if you don't necessarily understand the assumptions that like a model like logistic regression has, which I'm, I'm happy to go into. I don't want it to be, you know, <laughs> too boring, but you know, it, 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 for example, like in this, um, in uh, that this German paper looking at, at outcomes, they um, they use logistic regression, but they don't really uh, assess whether the variables are are adequate to go into the regression. Um, 
and there's there's three main assumptions that logistic regression models make based of the data that's that's put into the model so you know, one assumption is that any continuous variables that are put in are linearly associated with the outcome technically it's the the load of the outcome the log, the log odd of the outcome if the variable is not linear, then it, it needs to be transformed before it's put into the model with you know power terms, fractional polynomials, splines, which are um, basically polynomial functions that are are stitched together. And there's there's pretty straightforward ways to plot the linearity of variables and how they relate to the outcome. Um, but the models don't force you to do that. It's, it's sort of assumed that you've gone through the variables and, and checked those things. Um, the second assumption is that there's not large outliers, uh, in the continuous variables. So this is also easy to check by just, you know, plotting, plotting the data. You can look at what's called the Cook's distance to identify the outliers, or you can just filter out observations with, uh, you know, that have, you know, standardized residuals over, you know, three or some. You know, these are all pretty straightforward functions in the stats software that if you know that you have to do it, you can access it. But if you don't know, then you don't really bother. Um, you can, you know, transform it to a log scale also, if that makes sense for the variable. And then, right. you know, the, the, the third assumption that the logistic regression model has, and, it, and it's a mistake that's probably the most easily avoidable, is including collinear variables into the model, which is another way of saying variables that are correlated with each other. So the, the logistic regression model assumes that each predictive variable has, basically each, each predictor or independent variable is totally independent from each other and that they do not have a high degree of correlation. So again, I don't wanna to sound too abstract. So for example, height and weight, no, there's not a perfect correlation between height and weight, but in general, as people get taller, they're heavier. Or a negative correlation, like a, a car's age, and then its resale value as it gets as it gets older, right? That's a, a negative correlation. So the, the model really assumes that all the predictors are independent and are totally uncorrelated, which as we clinically know, is, is often not the case. Comorbidities often travel together you know, it's I, we we probably have you know hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes. Like it, it's like almost like we automatically type it you know in a note for 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 a lot of patients in in the U.S. So when these uh, variables are correlated, it it basically throws off the 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 algorithm that the logistic regression uses, which is just iterative, and it basically causes the errors of the of the coefficients to be um less accurate the coefficients you can kind of think of the logistic regression as for every variable that you put in it's basically estimating a weight for that for that variable that once it encounters new data with those same variables it weights those data that that it weights each data point and then produces a probability that the outcome is a or b you know whatever you whatever you ran the model on to begin with. And basically if, if the 
if the variables are too correlated, it, the logistic regression doesn't weight them appropriately. Um, meaning, and what, and when you when you see the odds ratios presented in papers, those odds ratios are calculated from those coefficients, right? So at, at every step, these are important things to look at, and they end up throwing off the results if they're not really assessed closely before they go into the model. And you can also test these things pretty easily with variance inflation factors, and you can remove variables if they have you know, high collinearity. Um, or what, what I prefer doing, and I think statistically is, is, is more valid, valid is, is matching the patients in the two different groups that you want to compare using algorithms so that you match on all the variables that could potentially be confounding, at least that you have access to in the data, which you know, more or less performs like a, a pseudo randomization. And that evens out the differences in some of these variables so that the logistic regression doesn't even have to deal with it. You're just, you're basically giving the model apples and apples to compare. And so you can only look, so that you can narrow the model to only focusing on the variables that you care about, as opposed to all of the, you know, potentially confounding variables. Yeah. So then these things, which as you describe them, make sense. And as you rightly point out, people with a background in statistics and with the training and the knowledge should know to do those steps before using the tools as you describe. Um, why do you think these things are making into our journals? Because the incentives are obvious for the people writing and submitting the papers, but I, I don't. I don't have a good word for it, so I'll just call it the degree of should know better uh, increases as you move up the chain from, let's take the example of someone applying into the match. So a medical student who wants to match in a neurosurgery knows they need a lot of papers. They write a paper. Maybe they don't know better. Maybe they have some data. They plug it into the stats software, click the button and run the regression, get a great odds ratio, You know, run a t-test, get a good p-value. They write up their paper, hunky-dory. The next step up is the attending. Maybe, you know, you're at, an, you're at an academic place, but you're a really clinically oriented attending. You do a lot of surgeries. You have a big data set that people want to write up from. Everybody wins. It's, very, you know, very common. You, you have a, a large case series that someone wants to write up. But you should know better. You're the attending. You're at an academic place. You should have a sense of these things, and you're the last name on the paper, so you should look at it. And then you go a next step up to the people publishing it. Uh, they should certainly know better. Uh, they're the ones putting it in print, sending it to the world, giving it their imprimatur uh, that this is fit to be read authoritatively in the field. And presumably they have some statisticians on staff who are reviewing these things and they wouldn't be in the in the field of doing the work of editing and publishing if uh, if they didn't at least comport themselves as authority on methodologies and taking the time to read these things. So what are the incentives that you think as you get higher up in that hierarchy that requires something to make it through in a publication, what are the incentives for the people at the top? And why do you think these things are slipping through the cracks if the, I guess the missteps or the missed steps, as it were, are so apparent when you read one of these papers? It's a good question that I think the medical community is asking more and more, and it makes me think of the line 
tell me the incentive and I'll show you the, the behavior. So I think the, the, the easier question or the, 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 I think the lower energy answer is to say it's just a publish or perish mentality. Hmm. You know, I, I think it's, you can kind of dismiss it as, oh, it's really just people trying to get more papers on their resume and that gets them a promotion or into their chosen residency or, or, or what have you. But the I think the more interesting question that I think begs a lot more discussion about how to actually implement it is how do you create disincentives for bad research? So hmm. there's clearly incentives for bad research, but there really are not any downsides. By that, I mean, there's not really any consequences to be paid for shoddy or lousy research that looks good and gets through papers, um, but ultimately doesn't really, it really just adds more noise than signal to the, to the literature. And a lot of that's just because there is, there is nothing to lose. If you, if you publish a paper that ends up not being accurate, even if you're not engaging in, you know, outright fraud, which is a separate issue that we can, you know, maybe talk about a different time. But um, even if you're not engaging in fraud, just not being thorough in what you're doing and it, that ends up being wrong or um, you, you don't even care if it's right, you just want to get it out. There's nothing that will, there's really no consequences to be paid. I mean, maybe a paper will be retracted if there's something absolutely egregious, but mostly it's just going to sit there until the end of time as part of the scientific you know, record. Now, this is if you, this is in contrast to something where there is uh, skin in the game, right? Like in finance, like if you use some, if you do some work and, you know, you put some money in some investment or whatever, and it goes down, there's like a, there's an immediate feedback. You're like, Oh, they lost money or you gain money, whatever. But with, with research, there's not, there's only upside to, to publishing, right? There's no downside right. apart from, you know, the opportunity costs that you spent you know, publishing another paper, you know, as opposed to, you know, spending more time in clinical work or, or, uh, you know, spending more time on a more difficult problem. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of the, the, that's the more difficult question to answer because the incentives to, the incentives to, to publish are clear, but it's, it's how, how do we create a, a system or culture in, you know, academic medicine where there are some consequences to having bad research? Right. Well, I think, uh, again, to show how the sausage is made, that was an unplanned, perfect cliffhanger because uh, on that transition from the inadvertent abuse and misuse of statistics to the, the mention of sometimes deliberate and knowing uh, misuse of statistical tools and uh, malfeasance in research and, and medical science, uh, we're going to bring this conversation to a close because... We're going to have you back, Tyler, uh, when Dr. Wang can be with us to talk about some uh, contemporary examples of scientific fraud, misuse of, t of statistical tools and malfeasance in research, and uh, what perverse incentives might exist 
uh, for that behavior in a pretty high ranking individuals who do stand to lose quite a lot if they uh, get caught. I will, as a uh, free public service announcement to any medical students entering or who will one year soon enter the match, um, you know, no one will fault you for having your name on a, a silly paper uh, just to inflate your CV. Sure, that's the nature of the game these days. But I say it every year on this show and to everyone who asked me in person, I would strongly discourage you to let people put your name on stuff you didn't contribute to just to increase the length of your CV. That's a shady practice and we can always tell and it never looks good. And absolutely don't let your name get put on something or be involved in some actual uh, bad practice research because that is, you know, for one line on a CV, that's a high price to pay uh, for yourself morally and ethically and certainly if, if that ever comes to light. So uh, there's a free PSA while we're on the subject. Tyler, uh, thank you so much for your time today. We're, we're speaking on the weekend and uh, as a junior attending, I, I know how uh, precious any time off from work must be with how busy you are starting up a practice. I can't wait to have you back on with Dr. Wang to do the second half of this conversation. Uh, but for now, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.